And we come with an expectation, Lord, that you're going to um, challenge us. Bring our attention to things. Kind of lay things out so that we can see what it is that you want from us. And in that process, Lord, you're going to draw us to you. And Lord, we acknowledge that we have to make decisions. And in making decisions, we determine the course of our life, and most importantly, the course of our walk with you. I I pray that you give us hearts that desire you, but also give us the courage, the courage to choose you. Lord, I pray that throughout the evening, in the time together, in the time in the discussion groups, your spirit is just present and speaking and in a powerful way. It's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. All right. We are in unit two. Uh, just to make sure, remind everybody, you, you probably remember this, but just so it's, what we do is, is you do a unit, and then we talk about that unit on, on Wednesday night. So you've just done unit two. We're going to talk about it tonight. Then tomorrow you start unit three, just so we're all aware of that. And again, do the study. I mean, there's always people that say, no, I'm just going to come and hear you talk. I'm going to be in the discussion group. My talk it cannot mean that much if you haven't done the study. The background for everything I say is in the study, so I strongly encourage you to do the study. Uh, we're going to start off a little bit where we, uh, what we talked about last week. We talked about the triune God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, that they are persons. That's an important part because that's why we can relate to them. As we talked about, we don't relate to a chair. We don't relate to a table. We relate to persons, and they are three persons, so we can relate to each one of them. That's very important on the foundation of what we're going to be talking about. And this is how we see things. We kind of keep our distance, keep God at a distance. Sometimes we use obedience, keeping God at a distance, because then what we can do, at least we think we can do, is control the relationship. But what God wants, and as we saw last week, we saw that God wants us in Christ, walking with Christ in an intimate relationship, not at a distance, but walking to the point where it isn't we're saying, what do you want me to do? That we are being molded and shaped so that we see the world the way Christ sees the world, and so these things are apparent to us, okay? So that was last week. Now we go into this week. So um, some trust in what? That was a memory verse, in case you didn't know that. For the people that are listening online going, what just happened? They heard some mumbling over the thing, because that's all they hear when they hear you guys speak. Um, So, um, what? So, um, now we're going to move on, and we're going to look at this week, okay? This is the way our lives look when when we're outside of Christ, right? We've got a life. It's usually focused on, on what, right? And, and Christ, evidenced by the cross, is outside our life, okay? And we're in a position of unsaved, right? That we have really, uh, we're what the Bible would say, enemies of God. We're not children of God. We're separated from God by sin. We're under the wrath of God from Sunday sermon. 
So that's, that's the state. Everybody kind of gets that. This is what happens when we come to Christ. We get a little Christ in our life. Here we are in our life, and, and we go, okay, I, I'm going to bring Christ in my life. So I, so I turn to Christ, and Christ comes in my life, and he's out there floating with all the other things. I can tell you, you can't really see this very well. So there's up there, it says family and sports, hobbies, work, you know, should, could say leisure, could say anything, okay? And Christ is just in there in our lives competing. And that's where 90% of the Christians live their lives. With little Christ kind of competing with everything else in their lives for a little space. Is that what God wants? No. In fact, would the Bible seem to tell us that is God even find this acceptable? What does he want? Yeah. He wants Christ not only in the center, he wants everything filtered through Christ. So it isn't just good enough to say, well, Christ is the center of my life, which I've met very few people that that's true of, not being critical, just the truth. He wants everything filtered through the matrix of Christ. In other words, we see the world through Christ's eyes. So that's a challenge. See, the challenge of that is really, at the end of the day, we want what we want. And for most of us, Christ is a little bit of what we want. Now, people say, they push back all the time. They'll say, oh, you're being too harsh, Tom. Come on, I follow Jesus Christ. I, I do what he says. I say, great. Give me a week of your life. Just let me just look at your life for a week. Let's see, really, where you spend your time, where you spend your thinking, where you spend your money. Really, what is the center of your life, and what's that matrix you see life through? Now, I'm going to tell you, we're in week three, right? Unit two? Week three, unit two, right? This is where things start getting interesting. Again, I, I do believe this is my 11th time teaching this, so I, I've kind of experienced this before. People will come to me and say, you know, I'm doing this study, and you know, this isn't really anything new, and I thought it would really change my life, and, and I, I just, I don't know, I'm not getting that much out of it. And I'm really busy at, pick a thing, work, you know, uh, volunteering here, doing this, so I don't know if I have time for this study. You've just experienced the study. That's the essence of the study. Are you going to choose something else? Or are you going to choose Jesus Christ? This study does not, as I've said a ton of times, doesn't have a, a, an overwhelming amount of content. You're not going to go, oh, wow, never thought of that. It just takes your life and holds it up in front of your face and say, do you really live a life that's based on the values you articulate or don't you? And it starts by, do you take the class? Do you do the study? Do you have time? Are you making time? Are you making this a priority? Are you living a God-centered life? Or are you all focused on yourself and what you want to do? That's the power of this study. And you're experiencing every day when you choose whether you're going to do day one, two, three, whatever day you're on, whether you come to class, 
whether you look up the Bible verses or you're just skimming through what Blackaby says so you kind of get the overview, or whether you're really diving in and reading the Bible and doing what he's asking you to do and doing the studies and answering the questions and doing the reflection and spending time. As I've said many times, if you do that, it'll have a powerful impact in your life because the mere fact you're doing this Meaning you're choosing God on a daily basis to carve time out of your life to make room for him. We have this little scale. <laughs> it's not very scientific. You look at that. And, and you're not going to, this is not a question in your groups. It's nobody's going to ask you. Though maybe... The Holy Spirit might. If you looked at your life and you said, as I look at the time, I look at the focus of my life, what's a priority, what I prioritize in my life, where am I in that scale between me and God? I mean, really, what is the center of my life? And then as you look at that and you kind of process it, you go, how does that align with what I articulate is my beliefs and my values? If you've been at Timberwood any length of time, you know, we say know what you believe, know why you believe it, what's the foundation of that belief, and the fact that Tom Wigan told me is not a valid uh, reason to believe something, and then live a life that's consistent with those articulated values. So know what you believe, why you believe it, and live a life based on those values. And that's what this study does. It subtly, over time, just helps you examine your life and say, what do you really believe? And how do you live that out? So as we go through this, this week is kind of a just a laying foundation. We're going to talk about a bunch of things that Blackaby's going to cover in more detail in the weeks ahead. But to, to, to really make this make sense, you have to wrestle with this idea of God-centeredness and self-centeredness. Okay? So I have a visual, and I have to say where this visual came from. Uh, I've had some spiritual mentors in my life. I'm, a, I'm a, a believer in having spiritual mentors, and one of my spiritual mentors for three years while I was in seminary was a guy named Dean Johnson. Uh, if you know Dwight Johnson, that's Dean's or Dwight's brother, Dean. He was the head of the Evangelical Free Church in Minnesota, Iowa for uh, decades. He pastored many churches, started some churches. And so he mentored me. And he, he passed on this, this visual, this concept to me, and it was very um, powerful. Now, for years, I called that which we're going to look at here a um, beaker, and in the last experience in God, it was explained to me that, that it, this is not a beaker. This is an Erlenmeyer flask, okay? So, every once in a while, I'm going to refer to this as a beaker, old habit. It's actually a flask, okay? So, I don't know if you remember high school chemistry or whatever, or junior high or whenever you had these little, and they're made out of what? Glass. How elastic is glass? Not elastic at all, right? And that's the concept. That we're this flask, that there's only so much capacity in our lives, okay? 
Now, for you scientific types, don't get lost in this metaphor, okay? I mean, some of you are already saying, well, what is elasticity of glass? If we warmed it up, we could get, no, 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 just follow the metaphor. <laughs> follow the metaphor. No metaphor is ever perfect, okay? So just follow the metaphor. We're made out of glass. We have so much capacity in our lives, okay? Generally, we are filled with what? Ourselves, right? We are consumed with ourselves. It isn't like we're so, you know, like we're always talking about ourselves, but the focus of our lives is through whose eyes, through whose priorities, with whose interests, us, right? So when we come to Christ, and I know some of this is a little hard to see. Well, I guess it's, it's gotten a little darker. Last time I taught this class was in winter. These slides work great. All of a sudden this summer I'm going, I can't see that. See, what happens is Jesus tries to come into our lives that is filled with, again, job, popularity, family, TV, money, success, hobbies. I should have had Facebook up there. That's the problem with not being on Facebook. Internet, whatever, all those interests. And he tries to come in, and, and the problem is what? We get about that much of Christ. I'll talk to people, and I'll say, tell me about, about you know, your life with Christ. What does that look like? Well, I come to church on Sunday. Okay. I come to church on Sunday. I read the Bible once in a while. And I pray. Are we up to 2% yet? So the problem is, there's not much room for Jesus in our lives because there's so much of ourselves, our priority. And again, I'm not talking about being self-centered as in how we would compare that in human terms. I'm talking about we just are about ourselves. Okay? So we can get about that much because that's how much elasticity is in the beaker slash margins of our lives. What happens is for us to grow in Christ, self has to come out, okay? Get that? For more Jesus to come in, self has to come out. And it's a direct one-to-one -one proportional relationship. The more self comes out, the more Christ we get, Okay? But if self doesn't come out, we don't get any more Christ. And that's a visualization of what the Bible constantly talks about in the new self. You know, die to self, pick up your cross, take off the old. You know, it, it says it over and over and over, and this is what it's talking about. It's about giving up the focus of your life on yourself and, and bringing in Christ. And it starts off with time. Carving out time in our lives for Christ. People say, I have no time for the Bible. Okay, some of you have heard this. Some of you haven't. For those of you who have heard this before, you can, you can answer my questions for me. What are the two things we have to do in life? Two things. There's only two things. Honestly, I'll prove it to you in just a second. Two things we have to do in life. What are they? And breathe and die. Breathe and die. You got to die. I'm sorry. Short of Jesus Christ coming, you got to die. And you got to breathe. And you say, wait a minute. What? Well, hold. Okay, nobody demonstrate, please. But if you hold your breath, what's going to happen? You're going to pass out. You're going to start breathing again. Trust me, my daughter did that, as some of you know, not intentionally. She didn't mean to stop breathing, but that was the process. She passed out, I don't know, 60, 70 times over the many years. By the way, she has not passed out this year. She went through... Uh, 
some kind of experimental things, and that and the grace of God, um, she's gone, yeah, a whole year, or a whole six months almost without passing out. Two things, that's it. Now you're saying, Tom, wait a minute, I got to eat. No, conscious decision, you don't have to eat. If you don't eat, you're going to die, but you don't have to eat. Well, I have to uh, name anything. No, you don't have to do it. What's the point? The point is everything we do is a value decision. Everything we do. People all the time say, I got to go pick up my kids. No, you don't. You're choosing to pick up your kids. I got to go to work. No, you don't. You're choosing to go to work. I got to, no, you're choosing to do it. See, we live unintentional lives. We don't realize that our lives are a series of choices based on our values. We live so intentionally. We feel we're being swept up along in life, right? I'm just going along doing what I have to do. I'm doing all these things because I don't have any choice. I have no time to read the Bible. I got no time for God because there's all these things I have to do. No. Wrong. Lie of Satan. Two things you have to do. Breathe and die. Everything else is a conscious decision based on your values. You want to know what you really believe? Stop talking, shut up, look at your life. That will tell you what you believe. Okay? So, when we come to this, it's a conscious decision. Come to me and say, I have no time to read the Bible. And, and well, some of you have experienced that. It's sometimes considered an unpleasant experience. But you know that's not a true statement. I go, I have to do this, I have to. No, you don't. You're making decisions. Make decisions for God. That's what God-centered living is. I'm making the decisions in my life to choose God over work, friends, family. You know, when we're in the Bible, it says, um, hate your family and love Jesus. It doesn't mean hate your family. Just like he says, you know, Esau and, and Jacob and all these. These love-hates are comparative terms in Greek or Hebrew. And they're comparative terms saying, no, really, really prioritize this. That which I love, I prioritize. That's what I hate. When we get into human thinking of hate, we mean negative emotional feeling. That's not what we're talking about. Jesus isn't saying have a negative emotional feeling about it, about your family. He's saying prioritize and the most extreme dichotomy is what? Love and hate. And when you look at that dichotomy, you see, wow, that's really extreme. That's what he's saying. Love Jesus, hate your family. Love Jesus, hate the world. He says that over and over. And what he's saying is prioritize Jesus over anything else. That's that love-hate dichotomy. And so as we do that, we start to make decisions that reflect that. And all of a sudden, we make time for all these things. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. If, if you're going to quit this class, best for you not to, to tell, come face to face and tell me about it. Because it, you're, you're going to get confronted. Because the essence of this study <laughs> is that. Because when you say, okay, so, yeah, Tom, uh, uh, this has come up, or this is, is uh, so I have to, wow, what do you think that conversation is going to look like? 
I might remind you, you don't have to, that you're choosing, and you're choosing the world or self or whatever over God. And that's not going to go well for you. I mean, the Bible's pretty clear about that. So this whole concept of the beaker, flask, flask, I knew I'd do that wrong. God, I even thought about it. You know, that's really bad. You know, of course, when you, when you call something, something for like almost two decades, it's a little hard to change quickly. But think of yourself this way. And, and, and you know, people always say, you know, I've said this before, I wish I had a close relationship. No, you don't. That's not going to happen. Wishing doesn't mean anything. I want. No. You desire? Okay, when you get to desire, then you're going to start making the changes that are necessary. You have to die to something. You know, Dying to self is not putting yourself down. I mean, that, that's a misconception. I mean, I don't know where that, that comes from, Satan, too. You know, Satan wants to be this. No, it just literally means I'm going to look at my life, and those things that I'm naturally prone to through my sinful nature to choose, I'm going to now say, this week I'm going to die to pick something, an hour's worth of something, and I'm going to replace that with an hour with God in his word, prayer, spiritual discipline, something. And as you make those choices, you start to fill yourself with God, with the triune God, with Jesus Christ, and it starts to flow. And then, then you get to the point where you know the flywheel effect takes over. I've said this tons of times. Uh, give God an inch of your life, and you'll take the whole thing. But we end up having to give him that inch one millimeter at a time. I know I changed metrics there. I changed from English standard to metrics. I understand that. But, but we do it bit by bit by bit by bit. I don't know anybody that's just like, you know, flung their old self off and fucking placed Jesus all in one false swoop. Paul certainly didn't. Paul took a decade. So it's a decision each day. And you've got 12 weeks of summer to week by week making that decision. Week by week, going through this study and choosing each day Jesus Christ over self. And that's the power of this study. Again, there's no magic. There's nothing in here you haven't heard before. Really, there isn't. But in the way he constructs it, he asks you to examine your life every time you open the book. And as you do, the truth of who's the foundation of your life will start to come out. The power is when people get to a point where they go, oh my goodness, I now see how I've been living. I now see how I could live. No, this is the life that I need to live. And it's in that process that the power of the study comes out. Okay? Any questions? Because we're going to shift gears a little bit here. Well, we're going to do this. We're going to come back to that. Blackaby makes a statement. He says, if you have trouble hearing God speak, you're in trouble at the heart of your Christian experience. This has some powerful, um, brings up some powerful emotion for some people. Um, I've said this enough times that I, I think it's all good, even though she's not in the study. My wife, the first time I ever taught this, 
long time ago, we come to this page, and, and uh, you know, I do my teaching on this, and she comes at me and goes, I, you know, I don't think God's ever spoke to me. Well, if you, know, if you know my story, I came, my wife was used by God to bring me to Christ. So I'm like, what? How can you say that? Well, she's a, you know, she's been a you know, Christian her whole life. She's a classic example of, of unconscious uh, competency, using that uh, wheel concept or quadrant concept. She didn't recognize that God was speaking to her and it shaped and molded her life because she didn't, she, when she heard God talked about as speaking, she saw this biblical account of saying, this is God speaking to you, Amy. She hadn't experienced that. And, and part of the problem of this study, there's a couple of points that I, I don't differ with Blackaby, but I just kind of try to smooth out a little bit. It was Blackaby talks about God speaking. And now we've got two whole units coming up on God speaking. So we got two weeks on it. So we're not going to go into great detail. And you may have a lot of questions. We're going to hold those off to the more granular uh, data in the next uh, couple of weeks. But when, when God speaks, Blackaby seems to talk about these big events, you know, the burning bush or when he's at. That's true. But we need to bring that into God is speaking to us. In multiple ways, and he'll get into that more when he gets. But right here, we leave the story like God only speaks to me in these ways. If God hasn't spoken to you, if God isn't spoken to you, then you could make an argument that you haven't been justified. And if you haven't been justified, you're not in a salvific position. And let me just show you what I'm talking about. As you know, Sunday mornings, we're in Romans. Romans, Paul makes this point that if you've justified, you've received the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, you're not justified. A whole credentialing of, of how you know you're saved. And if you receive the Holy Spirit, God has spoken to you. Now, there's a good chance you don't know that God's spoken to you. And I don't think there's a person in this room where God hasn't spoken to them. Because what's the most common way that God speaks to us? Right, the Bible. And, and if, if you have not read the Bible, I'd ask why. And I have a hard time believing that there's anybody in this room that hasn't read the Bible. So right then, God has spoken to us. The work of the Holy Spirit illuminates, we're going to get into that more in the biblical week of God speaking to us, illuminates this word to us and makes it more clear. But God speaks to us in all kinds of ways, okay? But the idea that the... That Hearing God speak to us means that we've heard this deep, audible voice. Yeah, that's one way, but that's an exception, okay? The most common way, the most common way is through his word, okay? Through the teaching and preaching that we expose ourselves to. Through reading books that are speaking of God, okay? One of which is, you know, experiencing God through experiences that we have with other believers, okay? Through uh, thoughts in our head, both in times of prayer and times of meditation, and then, quite frankly, just in times of living life. Henry, Bla or Henry uh, Dallas Willard wrote a book called Hearing God, and we're going to talk about it more when we get a few weeks into in God Speaks. 
And he talks, and the subtitle of it is a conversational relationship with God. And really, that's what we're striving for. Not for, you know, we're, we're walking down the street and then God says, Stop, Tom, I have something to tell you, and I'm going to tell you to do something. Okay, I've never experienced that. I don't know anybody's really experienced that, except for this guy that I know that, well, he's not doing so well right now. So, God speaks to us in many finite little ways, nudging our thought, and the key to understanding is to acknowledge that God speaks to us first, okay? And then second, being in a relationship to the extent that we can discern God's voice. You have a lot of voices in your head. We all do, right? I mean, there, okay, and I don't mean that in, yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry, Tammy, I, I didn't want to bring up that experience. <laughs> Just kidding. No, we have all these voices, right? We have the world, you know, TV, you know, whoever we're listening to is speaking in our head, you know, brr, you know, saying all kinds of things. You know, family members, you know, me right now, I'm speaking into your head. And what we've got to do is out of all those voices, we have to learn to discern what is the Holy Spirit. And, and the problem sometimes is we so desperately want something to be said by God that we'll take something that sounds like what we want and say, oh, that's God. That's God. That must be God. Because that's what we want. This week, he talks about George Mueller. George Mueller is saying, what, what's that very powerful line that he says? He says, and the first thing he has to do, the, in page 40, number one, page 40, number one, as he's trying to, uh, you know, understand what God's trying to say to him and discern God's voice, he says, I work at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. I, I'll hear people all the time say, okay, I want to do this, whatever this is, right? I want to do this, but I want to I hear from God. So I go, okay, so what are you doing? Well, I'm going, God, speak to me. Well, you know, that might not work. Because all you're doing is waiting till you hear something that says this is the right thing. And something will say it. It may not be God, but something will say it. There's something out there that will always agree with that which you want. Okay? But an awful lot of times it's not God. To truly hear God, we have to come and seek. Not his approval, not his, you know authorization, we have to seek his will. And to seek his will means we have to come with as little will of our own as possible. And that's a challenge. Again, we're going to get into more of that as we, uh, as we get into those weeks. This one is always an exercise that garners uh, some emotion. He speaks very briefly on it, but it becomes foundational for what we're going to be talking about for weeks. The idea that I am discerning God's will by what, what we term an open door or a closed door. 
the thinking behind that is God is enabling something to happen, okay? What it really is, is I'm going to take the path of least resistance. I'm going to use a worldly set of circumstances, generally controlled by the world, to determine my decision-making processes. I think I phrased that enough, you see the problems, okay? Just because an opportunity presents itself, a door open, doesn't mean that's God's will. And just because an opportunity seems to remove itself, closed door, doesn't mean that isn't God's will for you, but it may not happen at that time, okay? When we discern God's will, it's not an open door, closed door, easiest path, whatever works, I'm going to go with it. It's what is God's will and once that's determined, then I'm determined to go that way. And maybe it takes five years. Maybe it takes 10 years until that opportunity actually is available for me to do it. We like the open door, closed door, because it seems to be so clear and easy to discern. But really, there is no open door, closed door decision-making process. Think about it. How many doors are open to you right now? But you don't choose to go through most of them. You choose the doors to be deemed open by your own set of self-centered priorities. Not self-centered as in, aren't I wonderful? Self-centered is my agenda, okay? So really, we don't even use this. Because right now, there's an opportunity for you right now to quit your job and to go into professional ministry. That door is open to you right now. You going to do it? Uh, no, I don't feel called. Oh, wait, so the open door really isn't the what you use. See, the open door is just an excuse to do our own thing. Let's see it for what it is. It's us trying to control the world again. Let's just take that whole way of thinking and put it out the door. Instead, let's deem, let's get focused on and want to live for God, for God through Jesus Christ. Let's do what he tells us to do in his word. And, and how does that, I'm going to use Larry because he's here. First time I taught experiencing God, and I came to this point, and I said, you know, live for Jesus Christ, we got to, we got to, you know, do what he says. And, and Larry comes up and says, wow, that means we really got to know the Bible. I go, bingo. Absolutely. You know, no one else in the last 11 years has made that statement to me. Does nobody else get it? Yeah. If we're going to follow Jesus Christ, we have to know what he's telling us to do. And I don't mean just, oh, yeah, well, okay, I'll read some of the New Testament. No, we need to, to study the New Testament and the Old, but we're talking Jesus Christ. We have to know it to follow him, to, to make him a priority. His word has to be a priority to us. I, I mean, that seems logical, right? You know, the analogy I've used, okay, you start a new job, and, and uh, you know, let's say it's somewhat of a technical job, and, and you show up on day one, and they hand you a, a standard operating procedure or a manual or something, and they say, okay, over the next three weeks, study this for your job. And you take it and you throw it on a shelf and don't study it. How's that job going to go? 
probably not well. Same way with the Word of God. Why, why wouldn't we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and not want to know Jesus or know anything that he's taught? Quite frankly, I kind of want to know what he's taught before I said I'm actually in a relationship with him. You know, it's just like, you, you're getting that, well, you probably have it. You get in this situation, business world, I, I get this, and they'd say, oh, do you, you know uh, Harry Johnson? And, and you know, basically, you're sitting there going, yeah, I remember that name. I think I met him once. But you're trying to stay in the relationship with the person that you're talking to. Oh, yeah, yeah, Harry. Yeah, I know Harry. Yeah. What, are you guys very close? Oh, well, yeah, Harry and I. Yeah, yeah, we're okay. Yeah. Isn't it shocking he went to prison last week for XYZ? And you're going, he did? You're bluffing. But you don't really know him. We bluff about knowing God all the time. Knowing Jesus Christ. We play it well, right? Oh, yeah, I'm following Jesus Christ. Number one in my life. Yeah, really. Yeah, well, how do you feel about that? Oh, yeah, that's a powerful passage. Come on. If the study does nothing else, it causes us to get serious about that which we say we are. You know the book, Not a Fan? If you haven't read it, read it. You know, it's funny. It's great. doesn't tell you what to do, but it's a great litmus test of showing us where we're at. This just does it in much deeper and does it with this is what you need to do. And as you do that, don't, don't, get, don't get freaked out. You know, some people get uncomfortable. Don't walk away. And if you decide to quit the study, I want you to go to your mirror, look yourself in the mirror and say, yeah, I'm going to quit this study and this is the reason. And think how that's going to play in front of Jesus Christ one day. Because if you don't accept it, I'll guarantee he doesn't. And I'm not trying to say this is salvation, but this is a critical moment in your life where you're being confronted with choices. Embrace it. Seize it for what it is. We don't get many chances to have our lives laid out and examined. We don't get many chances to take a pretest on what our priorities are and how we're living our lives. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go back to the one we skipped. How many of you have some kind of plans? Maybe it's to go on vacation next week. Maybe it's a five-year plan. Maybe it's to do, maybe it's whatever. Maybe it's to graduate. Maybe it's whatever. How many have plans? Yeah. What's the foundation of those plans? <laughs> no. Yeah, no. It, that's an element of it, but thank you, Valerie. The foundation is a set of assumptions about the future. A plan in and of itself implies a future, okay? How are we called to live? We're called, you know, again, screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis, letter 15. We're called to live in two realms. What are those two realms? Anybody remember? Wow, that's impressive. Present and eternal. 
okay? And you're all freaking out, going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got a plan for retirement. I got to do, okay, when do you do all that? Now, okay? So I'm not talking about you don't think about the future and make plans, but you live in the present, make plans today, okay? But you live in the present and you live in the eternal. Most of us live where? In the future. And where is the number one place, and this is C.S. Lewis's argument, where is Satan's number one place that he wants us? In the future. And why does he want us in the future? Because all uncertainty, all fear, all stress, all things that we think we need to do to adjust ourselves to a worldly or self-basis today is based on assumptions about the future. If we can live in the present, understanding that, that example for, okay, teen, teen challenge, game. you're going to graduate, but don't focus on graduation. Focus on today. Growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ today. What do I need today to please Jesus? What do I need today to become Christ-centered? Let the, Matthew 6, let the wor future worry about itself. Live in the moment for Christ. When you start seeing the future becoming a source of stress for you, you know you're living what? A self-centered life. A self-centered life that's being dictated by the world. Just live in the moment. I got a daughter being, being married uh, on July 29th. Uh, there's a few details, okay? There's all kinds of things to worry about. The, what we keep telling ourselves is, what do we need to do today? Just today. We don't worry about, you know, tomorrow, next week, whatever. What do we need to do today? And that's how Jesus tells us to live. What do I need to do today? to draw closer to Jesus so I hear his voice better, so I understand what he wants me to do. And then out of that being, I determine what I do today. All right. If you haven't been put in a discussion group, please come see me.